We'll be talking about the impact of gun violence in this podcast. If this is a difficult topic for you, please take care when listening. I was just like angry, like real angry. I said, there is no God and now I have proof. Because no merciful God would, would ever do this. Like, look at how many kids went through this. And even now, I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. Yeah. Because I've I pulled myself out of that. That spiral that I was in, there was no one else that was going to pull me out of it other than myself. My name is Amy Over, and this is Confronting Columbine. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. I'm Nancy Glass with Amy Over, and this week's episode of Confronting Columbine is unusual, isn't it, Amy? I mean, you talked to people you thought you knew well, and it turns out there were things you didn't know. You're right. Um, Zach and Zach are two of my closest and dearest friends. Uh, besides my husband, they're, they're two closest people in my world. And the truth that I learned about them in this series uh, shocked me. I, I didn't know some of the things. Um, and um, for decades, they never told me, especially Zach Rissmiller. I mean, he has been harboring this for years and has never told me. It's an incredible story. Let's meet your high school friend, Zach Rissmiller. I'm talking to one of my dearest, dearest friends, Zach Rissmiller. We went to Columbine together and we're in the class of 1999. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so we've been friends for a very, very, very long time. 25 years. 25 years. Damn. feel like I need a rocking chair. We've also been through Columbine together. Yeah. And I think that just kept our bond stronger. Uh, there was a couple years there that I really didn't talk to many people from Columbine just because it was too hard. Yeah. Then we reconnected and we've been friends and talking ever since. And you make delicious beer. I love your beer. I love making beer, so it's, <laughs> it's fun. I cheated off you all the time, by the way. I know you did. You helped me pass math. I was fully aware that you were cheating off me. Like I remember yeah. you in class giving me like the answers on a, a little sheet of paper and being yeah. like, here, Amy, like, I know you're gonna fail this if you don't, <laughs> seriously, you're a dumbass. What were some of your greatest memories at Columbine? I was thinking about this the other night. Spring break, just going out and driving in Waterson Canyon, camping with the boys, just having fun. 
we were 16, maybe 17. We did lots of fun stuff together. I remember coming to cheer you on at basketball games. Yep. And I remember you in the stands at football. Always um, came and watched you play football. And I loved your guys' song that you sang to us. Oh, uh, the fight song. The fight song. Yeah. I still remember the fight song. Do you remember yeah. the fight song? I don't, but sing it to me. <laughs> <laughs> fight on for CHS for we I loved watching you boys play. I loved it. And I had a crush on every single one of you guys. Like, I, lo <laughs> I loved the whole football team. I was destined to be with a football player. My favorite thing about football is the pants. <laughs> just look at the butts. I really like the butts. <laughs> I loved the booties. <laughs> you were involved in a lot of stuff at the school. Yeah, my parents, justifiably so, wanted to keep me busy because I was to say the least experimental. And how many siblings did you have at Columbine? Yeah, so it was just me and my brother. Where were you the day of April 20th, 1999? I was at school in the morning and ditching in the afternoon. Yeah, because it was 420. Because I, I was experimental. <laughs> <laughs> I had three classes that last semester. Yeah, me too. And was not really into being at school. Zach, so you read the morning announcements that morning, right? Yeah, that morning I had written, what are we doing here today? And I mean, let's face it, it was 4.20 and we had two months left. So real bad senioritis. I don't think I had put any 4.20 on it. I remember thinking that if I put 4.20 on there, that there would be no way that I could pass that off as, well, I have senioritis and I don't want to be here. Oh man, you said, what are we doing here today? So I remember getting out of creative writing class. I walked into Dave, my best friend, still my best friend. And we left right after second period because I had three and four off into lunch. What'd you go do? So we were going to fix his car. Oh, okay. But first we got high as fuck. <laughs> anyway, so we decided that from there, the best thing to do was to go to Taco Bell. Of course. Because at this point we're hungry, real hungry. Five burritos, five tacos, like a drink. Like, I don't remember all what came with it, but it was a lot of food. Yeah, you could get a lot of food at Taco Bell back in the day for yeah. five bucks. Yeah, a lot. We got it. We were in the drive-through, but for some reason, they had those tables outside right by the drive-through. Yeah. Do you, do you remember that? Uh huh. <laughs> I feel like Chris Farley, like, you, you remember? You remember? <laughs> you remember? <laughs> I remember. Like, okay, probably need to go back to school. Being high at school was not something that was, um, sorry, mom, very foreign to me. Mm -hmm. You know, honestly, at this point, like, my day kind of ends there, yeah. and then everything else starts. That moment right there was pretty much the end of my childhood. Yeah. And there's not, I mean, there are certainly people in this world that have that moment where things switch to adulthood. But I don't know many people that were still in high school when that happened. Yeah. We got in the car and we're, we're heading back and we, the road was blocked again. We figured somebody got in a crash. Yeah. So we're in that right lane and everybody stopped in that right lane and everybody's trying to get over and 
a girl. I, I remember her face and her curly hair coming all the way out to yell at Dave. Somebody had pulled a gun at school. And I was just like, somebody pulled a gun? Holy crap, somebody's gonna be in trouble. Yeah. You don't bring guns to school. Fucking morons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Zach and Dave drove back to Columbine. No perimeter was established around the school yet. In fact, Zach only saw a few police cars, but thought it was odd that the officers were crouching behind their cars. The scene was still not registering. The boys got out of their car and joined a mob of students who were congregating in Leewood Park directly across from Columbine. Lucas comes up to me and was like, dude, yeah, they were shooting, like, you know, I don't know how many people are, are dead, but there's probably a couple. Like, I was just like, oh, oh, this is way worse than I thought it was. Yeah. I remember hearing the first gunshot and thinking firework. And then a ricochet, my brain switched to not firework. Then five or six more in really rapid succession. I remember hearing glass break, but not registering it as glass breaking. We were certain they were shooting at us. If you could imagine the whole soccer field full, and I mean like moving floors full of people. Yeah. The shots they heard were most likely the killers shooting at the propane bombs that hadn't detonated, but the noise was so loud even from a distance that it felt like the bullets were directed at them. Almost everyone just hits the deck at the exact same time. I'm standing and looking over, and when the gunshots stopped, the whole field got up and in unison started running. It became absolute mass chaos. And you know how when you're trying to hurry, but you're like trying to get somebody to come, you know, that little sideways skip you do? Like, oh my God, I gotta get away. Yeah. I remember doing that and yelling as much as I could to Dave. To this day, the only funny part, and he won't think it's funny, but the only funny part that happened that day was Dave running. He's like absolutely panicked, trying to get back to the car. But I mean, he is running in a way that I've never seen him run. I mean, like full, like Forrest Gump, funny, but I mean, clearly not funny. It's weird how like little memories like that come back. I was running in these wedge shoes and like, my mom said that when I got home, she's like, why didn't you take those stupid shoes off when you're running? And I was like, because they were really expensive. And like she, <laughs> like, I was like, they were really expensive and I, and I didn't have a lot of money. So I was like, I had just bought those with my own money from my job. So I was like, fuck, I'm getting shot at, but I am not taking these wet shoes off. Like I am not, and that's such a weird thing to think about. I could not run my full potential. I think I have nightmares still about that trying to run from something and you like you can't it's like your legs are jello and your legs yeah. like you can't move your legs <laughs> like it's just a weird sensation 
Um, what you do next? Did you hop in the car with Dave or like what? Yeah, so we had, I don't know, we had like 10 people in my car. I can't tell you who everybody was. Just jammed in. Yeah, I mean, I was in a white 96 Honda Civic. I bought it three days before. It had 45,000 miles on it. Wow. Um, did, your, like, did you know where like your brother was at that point? In my brain. Uh, no. That one's tough because, okay, so I take all of these people home and I get home. And I remember pulling into the driveway and seeing my mom in my spot. I mean, she was obviously very concerned, but I remember seeing her face and like that, that, uh, yeah. that face always gets me because I don't know. It's like, it's your mom. I'm sorry, I'm trying to gather my... No, take your time. Um, like, this is hard stuff. My mom definitely hugged me. My mom was definitely concerned for both me and my brother. And I think at that moment, she knew I was fine. And so now she needed to concentrate on the other thing. And, like, that's where my thoughts were, too. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. When I finally got out of the car, I'm sure she said other things, but the only thing I heard out of her mouth at that point was, where's your brother? I think that's what bothers me the most about it is that like, I didn't know. It's like, it's one of those things where I just like, I felt like I should have known. I absolutely should have known where he was and I should have been there to protect him as his big brother. Whereas there's no way I should have known. All of those things played into like huge trauma parts as I went forward in the future because yeah. you didn't do your job as a brother. That sort of stuff was like what I beat myself up for for years. Yeah. Where was your brother? So he was in the science hallway. And as Mr. Sanders, Coach um, Sanders yeah. yeah, when he got shot, that classroom that my brother was in is where he went. Your brother was in the classroom with... 
Yeah. Wow. I can't even imagine what that was like. So we were waiting in the gym for people to come back via the buses that were bringing everybody over. And they said, okay, this is the last bus. Was your mom with you too? Yeah, she was at the back of the gym. I don't know that she could bear to watch. It was just like, we're gonna take a deep breath. We're gonna get through this. Person got off the bus. And then there was like the longest heartbeat in the entire world. And then my brother like came around the corner. He was the last person off of the last bus. It was just like, it was all of that tension and all of that anxiety. And then just like, I had been running on adrenaline all day. So like, I don't even know like how my brain produced even more adrenaline. You and your brother haven't talked about it? No. Did the police question you at all? I had to answer questions from CBI and FBI. Were you terrified? Fuck yeah. So FBI and CBI came to my house to interview me regarding the thing I put on the announcements that was about weed and is still about weed. They wanted everything from that morning from video production. They just wanted as many different things as they could possibly get. And anything that I didn't give to the FBI, news outlets wanted. As an 18-year-old kid, I was like, how much are you going to give me for them? You know, not thinking like, well, that's pretty unethical. <laughs> I remember thinking that it can't, can't get out, that I, I was even anywhere close to being associated with these two. Yeah, that was tough. That had to have been so hard, Zach. To find, to find out at the same time that I was on lists, their lists. You were on the list too? Yeah, yeah I, I guess I was on the list too. I, I, I want to get to the bottom of this list. Like, I just want to know if I was on this list. I'll never be able to like know, but I know what I did to be on that list. So probably about six months prior to that, in video production, we had this like editing suite. They had a video of them just taking sledgehammers to bikes and like taking sledgehammers to bikes is like one thing, but the violent way that they were doing it was just like- Really fucked up. Really fucked up. We weren't supposed to do violence in any way. So I told them. And I think it was just basically like, you know, you know, you guys know you can't have violence in video. Yeah. So I think that was pretty much all that was done about it. I didn't like them. So they're doing something they weren't supposed to do. So I told them if I had to guess, that's why I was on their list. But I, yeah, I'll I, never know. And I'll I, never know either. And you know just... what? I don't care. I know. Fuck them. Yeah. Honestly, like it's gotten to a point in my life to where like they have put me through so much shit. They don't deserve another moment of my thoughts of like beating myself up because of something they did. Exactly. And, and being on that list and being like depressed about being on that list is like is something that, yeah, has absolutely gone through my head of like, mm -hmm. maybe I had a hand in causing all of this stuff. Especially then, you know, we used to come on the announcements and make it like really out in public, make fun of Frank. Of course. The year previous, I don't even know if you remember, but at the time CGI was like just starting. And so some senior students were like figuring out how to do like CGI. And we had a bunch of like 
Star Wars things and things yeah, going on. That. And then like, you know, at the end of the video, we blew up the school in CGI. You didn't have a hand in causing anything, Zach. You were learning a new skill. That didn't have anything to do with the shooting or the bombing. So in the days that followed, my mom said I was a zombie. Were you that way too? Yeah, so I had an internship at Lucent Technologies in video production. We were doing like infomercials and yeah. stuff. And I remember I was running teleprompter. And so I remember hitting a speed that I thought was fine. And then I zoned out and there was a mistake and the prompter just kept running and I was just sitting there. And I remember the director looking over and going, what are you doing? And like snapping out of it and going, oh, oh I'm sorry. And then like, I remember the producer going, wait a minute, don't you go to Columbine? And I was like, yeah. And she was like, oh my God, what are you doing? Why are you here? Yeah. And I just remember thinking like, I don't know what else to do Yeah. right now. And so like the board operator was like, we're gonna take him to a strip club. We're gonna get him hammered. And that's like, what he needs. That's, that's what he needs. <laughs> that's what he needs. And I was like. <laughs> I don't think anyone knew what to do with no. us. Like, they were no. like, here's yeah. a, a new backpack and here's all this new stuff. Like people yeah. would give us, don't you remember people would just yeah. give us like tons the, and tons of stuff. The most meaningful ones. And I still have, <laughs> I can't believe I'm gonna choke up on this. My nickname was Monkey. Yeah. And uh, we had friends that um, you know we had been hanging out with for a while and that um, some of us had dated. They gave me a monkey with the, the Chatfield and the Columbine ribbons. Called it. I still have it. Uh, it's my favorite thing. Yeah. Because it just, I mean, it meant so much. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, that sense of normalcy, like that that's my that's my monkey. Is that like that was my nickname, that was my identity, that was like everything. And I I mean I got that because I could climb anything. That's awesome. To have that monkey to like just cling on to something that was uh in the before four times. Yeah. It's hard to remember who I was before Columbine. I think probably my biggest emotion after was the anger factor. Yeah. And uh, so angry that I threw a vase at my counselor and yes. like got kicked out. <laughs> so angry that like I would literally like kick holes in my parents' walls. And you know, just to the point that my mom like was like, you are out of control, yeah. you know? because I, I ran my car into their garage, like raging destructo. My rage wasn't like, it was directed at those two, mm -hmm. but it was mostly directed at myself. Zach. Yeah, <laughs> it's stupid. No, it's not stupid. Well, it's stupid it's now. It's not stupid. It's, it's, you, know, you know, you come out the other side and you can look back at it and you can say, what in the world? was I doing? What in the world was I thinking? When did you let it go or forgive yourself? I had a series of pretty spectacular breakdowns. I get sad and I get angry about it. Sad that I did that to myself. 
angry that when my mom made me go get therapy afterwards, that it is something I like was so ashamed of at the time in 99, psychology wasn't where it is now. I will credit my ex-wife for making me go to therapy after our divorce because I did. I mean, uh, that 10th year anniversary, I had a unbelievable breakdown and then spent the next probably six months being absolutely and incredibly depressed and uh, suicidal and all sorts of things. You know, a couple other breakdowns, a couple other things that ended my marriage. I was not good um, with money. And it's because a, lo a lot of it was just like, you know, fuck it, what do I need money for? Like, I could die tomorrow, who cares? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm still digging out of that hole. I really wish that, you know, if there's, if there's one thing that I can rewind, yeah. you know, is starting this way sooner. You know, I don't know if I was ready right away. For therapy? Yeah, starting that journey way sooner. Like, 35, when something happened when you were 18, is, is too long. But that was a part of your path and your journey, and I feel yeah. like, like, look at you now, Zach. Like, you've come so far, and you're doing so well. Oh. <laughs> no, you're my hero. Like, you've worked your ass off to get where you are, and it hasn't been easy. There's been times where I didn't sleep one night because I was w so worried about you. You know, where you called me and I was like, I need to go to him. Like, I yeah. need to. And you were like, no, you can't. I don't need you right now. And I was like, if I lose him, like, I will never forgive myself. But there were a few times, Zach, that I thought I was going to lose you. You know? Like, there was a couple couple close calls that, you know, we've all been there, Zach, and I want you to know, like, I've been suicidal too. Like, we've all been there. Like, we've all been to the point, like, fuck this. I don't want to deal with this shit anymore because it's so painful. And for you to harbor that for so many years. It sucked. It sucked so much. But look where you are now. You have a beautiful daughter. You're a great dad. You have a thriving business. That's kind of the point of having to go through something like this. Because after 15 years of dealing with my own insanity, after coming out the other side, I still have the mindset of there's never gonna be another day in my life that I will ever do something that I'm not happy with. Every day has to be filled with what I'm happy with. That can't happen. It won't happen. No 18-year-old should have to go to 13 funerals in two weeks. No. I don't even think it was over two weeks. I think it was like a couple of days. Fast forward to the future. I am a very proud business owner of the fifth largest brewery in Maryland. I love my job and I've been doing it for 10 years now, and it's everything that I wanted to do and everything I wanted to be. 
it involves so much science. It involves so many things that make me so happy. And it, it does, it makes me happy on a daily basis. But I still live in that realm. And the message that I need to make sure is heard is like, if you're not doing what makes you happy like right now, and if something is eating at you that's not making you happy, like go figure out, go get help, go do whatever it's gonna take to like get you to a place that you're gonna be happy every day. And if you're not there, what are you, what are you doing? Yeah. I gotta, I gotta be honest, like what are you doing right now? It's, I'm so proud of you. Thank you. It's been a long road, man. <laughs> man, yeah. It has, yeah. but it's really exciting. Like this next chapter, we're about to both turn 40. Why you gotta be like Because that? we're going to be 40. Why you gotta do it? Why you gotta do it? <laughs> I feel like we don't look 40 or act 40, but we're about to be 40. No, I'm a child. I'm a child that's too. that's fine. I it's like sweet. being a child. It and you're a wonderful well. father and your daughter is so lucky to have you as her daddy. And I'm just blessed and lucky to have you as a friend. Thank you. <sighs> you okay listening to that? I am. That one struck me really to the core. It's 25 years of friendship. But I'm so grateful that I, I've had Zach along for 25 years of our ups and downs and the late night phone calls or text messages that he felt comfortable enough always to call me and let me know that he needed help or that he was in a dark place. You know, I'm forever grateful that he trusts me enough to go there. What do you think turned the corner for him? Was it therapy? You know, I think he hit rock bottom. He just decided to make some some serious changes in his life with addiction, with counseling. You know, his daughter definitely has pulled him out of the darkness. I think it's a, a combination of, of those things that really just got Zach to a healthier place. Had you guys ever talked this through before? I knew he was off campus and grabbing Taco Bell and stuff, but I didn't know the extent of what his day looked like. I never knew that, like, he was being shot at in the park and that his brother was stuck in the science room with, with Dave Sanders. And he's been harboring that for so long, and I had no idea about the morning announcements. So in all these years, he's never said a word to you about this. I never knew his story fully. I can't even imagine what it's like for him or what it was like for his mother to be waiting and waiting and waiting and then having his brother be the very last person off. I think I would have had a breakdown over that. I would have had a breakdown too. I, I don't know how their family got through that. We talked about anniversaries. We've talked about hard times that we're both going through. On Columbine anniversaries, like Zach's one of my first people that I check in on every anniversary, but we never have gone there. I think that when you go there, sometimes you think you can never get back, so you don't go at all. What we do is raise money for the Rebels Project. We work to help survivors out. So that's kind of like how Zach and I connect. 
How did it make him feel to talk about this for the first time? It was time. It was time for him to share those details, to finally like put it in the past and really just try to move forward. He needed to go there. And now we're going to hear from another one of your close friends, Zach Hartaya. With everyone fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay on top of mind, and see big results. Fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media posting, and even events management. Plus, you can send with confidence. Knowing your emails are actually reaching your customers, thanks to their best-in-class 97% deliverability rate. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We're at Red Robin. Were you the simple chicken? Oh, no. Oh, yeah. She was simple. Sorry. Thank you. You're welcome. California. And I am the burger to go. And then Pete there's got the wrap. I like telling my story, and you know, not necessarily tied to what happened in the school, and we can, we can absolutely broach that. But there's also the aftermath. And the reason I love talking about the aftermath is because I made so many terrible mistakes. And I think this is probably where I need to jump into what happened to me and what was going on. Jefferson County 911. Yes, I am a teacher called by high school. There was a student here with a gun. He was shot out a window. I believe one person. I was in choir. It was an older class. He had to at least be a junior, so 16, 17, 18. When the shit hit the fan, there was a guy who said, fuck this, we're getting out of here. He was like, I'm getting the fuck out of here. And we started to run, and I'm like, I am with that guy. Then I didn't know where Adam was. My best friend of this day, and I didn't know where Adam was. He's about 6'4". He, at the time, was weighing in at about 290 pounds. And I looked back, and Adam had opened up the choir office, and he was literally hurting people in there. So for context, there's an office inside the choir room. People were crippled with fear, and I literally saw him grabbing girls by their shirts and their belts and just kind of hucking them into the room. Mm -hmm. You know, not trying to hurt them, but just, you know, getting them in there. And I saw what he was doing, and so I started to help. And I grabbed the young lady that was under a chair, and I said, you need to come with me. And so we got her in the office along with several others, and then we shut the door. And how many kids were in the office with you? Oh, 60 plus. Wow, Zach, so you're telling me there were 60 people in this office? Yes, and it was a four by 10 foot space with plenty of office furniture, it was jam packed. So I said, Adam, what do you want to do? And he said, Nikki's still out there. Nick is his twin brother. And I stopped and I was like, uh, Lauren, my little sister is still out there. And so I was like, okay, let's go find him. So we opened the door along with two other kids and we got ourselves out the door 
and there was this wood paneling along the walls. And so the wood paneling above us exploded. They were shooting at us. And then we just started seeing fireballs coming in and those fireballs were going directly into Coach Sanders' back. And he went face down to the ground. He bear crawled to the science room where he eventually died. So if you take a look at the map of the school, I was really in the center of everything. Probably eight to 10 steps down the science hall was where Mr. Sanders passed. And then we literally were less than catty corner to the library. So we were right there. So we heard every, everything. They were extraordinarily happy that they killed Mr. Sanders. They seemed ecstatic that they had killed the teacher. It was barely audible because the guns were so loud, but you could definitely hear them cheering them, trading the fuck yeah between each other. They were reveling in what they were doing. We were paralyzed with fear and a wonderful, wonderful woman who probably saved my life and all our lives. Her name was Mrs. Miller. She was a science teacher. Miss Miller ran over. The other paneling exploded and she said, you guys get in and get down. She risked her own life to save us. And so we ran back in, listening to the adult authority as it was. And then we jumped back in the office space and we shut the door and then we barricaded down for what felt like 15 hours. I picked up the phone in the office that we were trapped in. I talked to my mom and I told her I'm trapped and I don't know what's gonna happen and I had to make sure I told my God damn it. I had to make sure I told my mom I loved her because I was a hard teenager. I wasn't insane. I, I was probably more typical than I, than I actually think, but my friends are wild animals. I'm a wild animal, you know? I definitely enjoy myself, and there was a lot of growing pains between myself and my family, and I, I needed them to know mm -hmm. that if I didn't make it, no matter all of the bullshit, I love them. So I needed them to know that. I was trapped in the school for roughly four hours, and we were very close to the library, and the sounds of what was going on was everywhere. We heard the entire massacre. We heard gunshots all day long. Now I realize our perpetrators were dead less than 30 minutes in. And I spent decades thinking I was absolutely insane for claiming that I heard gunshots all day long. But because this was new, because no one knew how to handle it, the SWAT team was clearing corners by shooting blindly down the corners to see if they could encourage someone to return fire because they didn't know if someone else was there. How did you guys pass the time while this was all going on? You know what? It wasn't all scary and miserable. We smoked cigarettes in the roof. We, we lifted the panels and smoked cigarettes. We took one of the ceiling panels and pulled it down and found a permanent marker and, and wrote all our names down that just in case the shooters found us, they knew who was in there. It wouldn't be too hard to identify our bodies. You know, it is what it is, but a girl was a diabetic and so we had to make our way out into the room and get her her, her glucosamine tablets and her shots because she wasn't gonna make it without that. Same girl <laughs> also peed in our teacher's thermos, but Adam and, and another young lady, she may have been a virgin, and she was like, Adam, I'm not gonna die a virgin. You wanna, <laughs> it's really dark and we have a corner. <laughs> so, I mean, there was, you know, we were, we were kids. We were 17, 18. Now you knew one of the shooters, right? I had known Dylan my whole life. 
I had known him since I was six years old. Not only did we go to elementary school together, my dad spent his life in oil and gas, and Dylan's dad is a PhD-carrying geologist. And so he made his living working for specific companies, but also freelanced quite a bit in geology when you're drilling into the ground is, is a very important thing. Okay, so your dads knew each other. Yeah, and so knowing Dylan my whole life, I probably hadn't talked to him in about two or three years, but I ran into Dylan and Robin at prom. And just being in the moment and being fun and, and trying to be you know, kind to everybody, I said, hey, Dylan, my dad said you got into college. Congratulations and you know, enjoy, man. Because frankly, I probably would never talk to him again. And he just said in this low, grumbly voice, yeah, we'll fucking see. And then Robin Anderson is just staring us down. And I was like, what? And he just kind of turned on a pivot and walked away. And I was like, Katie, my date's name was Katie. And I was like, Katie, I'm gonna go fucking punch him in the face. What a jerk, you know, I was just trying to be nice. And she was like, let it go, he's an asshole. Dylan's date, the girl who stared down Zach, was Robin Anderson. And she was to play a pivotal part in the shootings at Columbine. She was a good friend of the perpetrators. And since she was 18 and they were not, Robin agreed to purchase two shotguns and a rifle at a local gun show. That straw purchase provided three of the four guns used in the mass shooting. She was never charged with a crime. It's always been a creepy thing for me to know that those were the last words I exchanged with him and he alluded to the fact that he was about to do something absolutely terrible. It haunts me that there was a plan that whole time. Yeah. Prom was my last time as the Zach Hartaya that anybody knew. Well, that makes me emotional. Yeah. Zach Hartaya died in that school on prom night. Where was your sister? She was in the algebra room and she made her way pretty much right out. Thank God. So what happened next? What did you do after you got out? I just remember a really, really quiet ride home. I was 17 and my parents hated the fact that I smoked cigarettes and they were always up my butt about it. My dad's like, what do you need? I'm like, you stop and get me a pack of cigarettes. He was like, yeah, I will never do this for you again. I'm like, you only have to do it for another 10 days and I'll be 18, so yeah. And I, I just said, I gotta find my mom. And my mom was upstairs just in her bedroom, in the bathroom, and she said she was just praying. And I said, Mom, I'm here and I'm safe. And she grabbed me and just fell apart. Zach, I blocked out a lot of things when I ran out of that building. Do you remember seeing some of the victims when you were finally rescued? You saw Danny, right? I knew Danny was gone, yes. I saw him directly, because on our way out, we ran past his body. Danny Rohrbaugh was one of the 13 murder victims. He was shot down on the sidewalk outside the cafeteria with two of his friends. Danny's body was left lying there for 24 hours. Zach had driven him to school that day. Why had he been left? Investigators feared that his body may have been booby-trapped. So that's what happened that day. But that was probably six hours of my life, right? Beyond that, I wanted to go back to normal as soon as humanly possible. And that's true of everybody, right? That is a commonality of trauma victims, is that the very next moment you want to be normal, you don't want to deal with this. Columbine's principal, Frank DeAngelis, knew that the Columbine community wanted to get back to what life was like before. But he also knew it would never work that way. 
People have the perception that there's going to be this magical date in which everything's going to return back to normal. What I tell people is the Columbine community and what we had prior to the tragedy will never return to that normalcy. The scars that we experience will remain with us forever, but the message that I want to share is you're not in this alone, you do not have to mourn this alone. There wasn't a lot of fear in undergraduate of, of going back to school. I wanted it, I needed it. But there was a massive fear and for some reason it caught up with me when I was getting my master's degree and for some reason being in a classroom was really hard and I, I muscled through it. But I started a really successful career in finance. It was private sector finance. I interned on Wall Street for almost a year and things were going my way. I was making absurd amounts of money. Anyway, the, everything for me came to a head when I was about 26, so eight years after the shooting. I was in this high-profile career. I was doing really, really well. Uh, my bosses and, and colleagues adored me, which, I mean, 26, you know, that's, that's a big deal. I'm, I was really proud of it. But we used to have meetings in rooms that weren't much larger than what the choir office was. As these progressed, my extremities would go numb, my fingers and my lips would go numb, I wasn't breathing. I was having an anxiety attack. It was everything I could do to make it through these hour-long meetings until it wasn't. And I jumped up, I ran across the table. I think I broke the intercom phone, kicked off a bunch of people's stuff, jumped down, ran outside, got in my car, went home, and didn't even bother to call my boss for another 72 hours. So I went to the doctor. I'm that 40-year-old who still sees his pediatrician, like Ross Geller on Friends. He I, legit goes to his pediatrician. <laughs> I, I just got a physical last week, and it's the same doctor that gave me a physical when I was, you know, eight years old and getting ready for sports, so. Um, he hasn't left. <laughs> I haven't left. <laughs> and so as a family doctor and someone who's known me my whole life, he was really kind, but he said, Zach, it's mental, and we need to do something about it we're gonna get you with a psychiatrist and we're gonna get you with a counselor. He's like, but meds take time. You're gonna be dealing with this until we can find something that really works for you. But there was an innovation in a pill called Lexapro and that actually worked. And so then I went to a therapist. My mom's family's very stereotypically Jewish. <laughs> and I walked in to see my therapist and she had big glasses and a bunch of gaudy jewelry and I felt right at home. And then she proceeded to ask what was wrong and I told her what was going on at work. I'm in a high-stress job. I'm on the tail end of writing my master's thesis. And my mom's kind of a helicopter mom. My dad is a very typical Latino dad who loved us and provided for us. And we never wanted for anything, but there wasn't a lot of emotion there. And I'm just stressed out. And so for an hour, I did that. And then at minute 57, I said, by the way, I was in the Columbine shooting, stuck there for four hours. And I don't think that has anything to do with this. And she took her clipboard and like threw it on the ground, took off her big gaudy glasses and said, where the fuck has that been for 57 minutes? And you are coming back before the end of the week because we're gonna talk about that. That is what's driving this. And I was like, no, 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 it was eight years. I should be over it. And she said, that is absolutely not the case. And so I did come to find out that that's what it was. And that's my first cautionary tale in all of this. But then what ended up happening was I got better and I met a girl and I fell in love and we moved in together 
Zach's relationship was complicated when his girlfriend gained partial custody of her sister's children. Their romantic relationship ran its course. They were tied together by the children Zach helped care for and grew to love. But that wasn't enough to sustain their relationship. I don't handle loss well. And so we broke up. I moved out. And with her and her kids gone, there was just this brand new void. I didn't know how to manage the loss of her. And I didn't know how to grieve it. I didn't know how to mourn it. And I didn't know what to do. And I traumatize into that, but it's never okay, in my mind anyway, other people can disagree, but it's never okay to blame your trauma for anything that you've ever done. I began to really abuse a lot of substances, alcohol, cocaine, marijuana, the litany of stuff day in and day out. And just the pure and simple fact that I wasn't getting the help I need because I was directing the help towards these children who I thought needed it more. I ended up becoming a domestic abuser. And I, I went to jail. It was never physical, but it was emotional abuse. And I acknowledged that there's very little difference at times. But I was harassing her to a point that she couldn't sustain her life. And so jail was a really sobering piece of my life. And I never lied to the police. I told them exactly what I did, exactly what had happened. And they threw me in jail. And I spent four days because it was over a, a long weekend. And so I had to stay. And then I was released on my own recognizance. I got out of jail and I went home to kill myself. I had it planned out. I knew exactly what I was going to do. I didn't want anybody to know. I'd rather have just been a missing person. And so I was going to drive up to a spot about three hours outside of the city and die a quiet death in the middle of the woods. I didn't want to do anything as cliched as a note. I didn't want to leave a question mark. And I was really bitter. I didn't want my ex to be like, oh, this is a fuck you to me, because that's not what it was. I wanted my life to be over. I was done and horribly depressed. My mom caught wind of something going on. I mean, obviously, I had just gotten out of jail, and she dropped me off, but she just did not have a good feeling. And she caught me heading to my car. She'd come up to my apartment, she literally caught me with my foot out the door as I was ready to go in my life. That changed everything. And so I took an extended leave of absence from work. I did my, my diversion program so the, the domestic violence charge fell off. And then I enrolled myself into an intensive outpatient program. I was there from like 7 o'clock in the morning till 7 o'clock at night, meeting with a psychiatrist, a multitude of therapists, centering techniques, meditation, yoga. I did the whole program. So I'd leave them. And then twice a week, I would go do EMDR with my regular therapist. And so we'd start to work through some of that stuff again. I did that for nearly nine months, and I got better again, but this time I learned a really, really hard lesson. It was Mr. DeAngelis was right. This is a marathon, not a race, and my marathon is never going to be over. A marathon makes you exhausted. It's pointless. You tend to shit your pants at the end, and you <laughs> We're signed up by your stupidest friend, and for some reason your nipples hurt, but that doesn't mean you can stop running it. And just in terms of what I always talk about with, with my marathon based on Frank's quote, I'm like, God, that is perfect. I didn't know that I was not taking care of myself and slowly slipping into a manic depression, going into chronic depressive disorder, and I, I didn't know that I had such a hard time letting go of things and letting go of people, regardless of if they you know, die or if they just sort of leave my life for whatever reason. And I didn't know 
that on substances I had the ability to be such a monster. It was very verbal, very emotionally abusive, and I am going to regret that for the rest of my life. And now I have to be incredibly conscientious, and like I said, I built a massive accountability system. I never stop seeing my therapist, and I'm doing the best I can. You can't ever get yourself to a point where you think you're beyond what happened because you're never beyond what happened. You're gonna be healthier and you're gonna do better and you may not have to see a therapist every day or every week, but you do have to keep on with it. Wow, that was honest. Very candid and very honest. Were you shocked? I wasn't shocked because I, I've heard Zach's story. I just am shocked that he shared it with the world. I think it's gonna help a lot of people. Like he said, this is a marathon, not a race. And Zach and I were not friends in high school. I started working for Zach. He's my boss for the, with the Rebels Project. He was actually really pissed off when he found out Amy Evans was going to be underneath him. But then him and I just became like the best of friends. I'm very lucky to have a friend like Zach. There are so many heartfelt things that strike you. But the other thing that strikes you is... He's still going to a pediatrician? <laughs> yeah. We make fun of him. He does his prostate exams with his pediatrician. He's not childish, but he's definitely has this kid-like factor about him. The other thing that I think I've learned listening to you and everyone else involved is that the trauma doesn't seem to show up immediately. I mean, for your Zachs, they didn't show up for... 10 years. Mm -hmm. Why is that? I don't know. Uh, PTSD and trauma tend to, you know, it's like delayed. And I think a lot of it, I know with Zach Rissmiller, you know, when he became a father, a lot of the triggers started happening for him. Same with me as I became a mom. And when my daughter started going to school and it's like, we've been trying to cope for so many years and I don't know what it is about that 10-year mark, but it seemed like we started having our own problems. You think that the trauma would be within the year of your event, but it's really, it happens later. It happens much later. On the next episode of Confronting Columbine, I was told I was on a hit list. Was there a hit list? <sighs> What was your last name then? Evans. Because I've got their list right here. Oh my gosh. My heart is like pounding right now. This is something that I've just been struggling with for a long time. For more information on The Rebels Project or to donate, please go to therebelsproject.org and see me there. Want to know more about the Confronting Podcast? Please follow us at Confronting Pod on Twitter Instagram, and Facebook for photos, additional content, and discussions about the podcast. We are all confronting something, and I look forward to continuing the discussion from our episodes over social media with all of you. If you enjoyed this one, please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for going on this journey with me. Confronting Columbine was produced and hosted by me, Amy Over. Executive produced by Nancy Glass, Andrea Gunning, Ben Fetterman, and Carrie Hartman. Produced by Julie Clark. Associate producer, Trey Morgan. 
Editing by Senior Audio Editor Matt Dovecchio, Editor Drew Wallace, and Dean Welsh. With production assistance from Megan Paisley and Brianna Fars. Other members of the production team include Kristen Melcuri, Pete Ward, and Natalie Thomas. Music and original composition by Mide Music. Confronting Columbine was produced by Glass Entertainment Group, Glass Podcasts in partnership with Wondery. Answers for Claudia, a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus, explores a 15-year-old mystery, the disappearance of Claudia Lawrence on March the 18th, 2009. Claudia was a seemingly happy 35-year-old when she vanished without a trace. There was no crime scene, no CCTV of Claudia leaving her home, and no body found. She simply finished her shift, phoned her mum for a chat, and was never seen again. Claudia's mum, Joan, is now 80 years old, and she thinks this might be her last chance to find answers. I'm journalist Tom McDermott, and when I offered to help Joan, I had no idea what was in store. In Answers for Claudia, I speak to the people who knew Claudia, interview past suspects, and investigate the rumours and theories that surround this case. Why are the residents of the village Claudia lived in still so frightened? And what can we find out about the people who were closest to Claudia? You can binge Answers for Claudia exclusively on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app.